welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. I need no introduction. I am Vanessa Lorenzen. No, I'm not. I'm Mark Ritter. I generally do music here, but I have had the privilege to preach a couple of times, and our guest speaker, Vanessa, was unable to come today because she has fallen ill and has some sickness as well in her family. So she's doing the responsible thing and staying home. We miss her, and we missed hearing her message today, but she did ask me to speak in her stead, so that's why I'm here today. And I figured, much like the last time that I had the opportunity to speak, that I would tell a story, and uh, I figured before I tell this story, which is fascinating, I'm going to read out of James 2, so please bear with me while we read this scripture. My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes while the other is poor and dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place, sit here. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there, or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My dear brothers and sisters, listen. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin. And by the same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law but fails at one point is guilty of failing to keep all of it. The one who said don't commit adultery also said don't commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you are a lawbreaker. In every way, then, speak and act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom. There will be no mercy in judgment for anyone who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy overrules judgment. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. The word of God or the people of God? Thanks be to God. So imagine that you woke up one morning and had no idea where you were. You have no idea what's happened to you, how you got to be where you were, and terrifying enough, 
you don't even know your own name. Now, the subject of amnesia makes for some very excellent television. You might find it the plot of several soap operas, but when you actually consider the idea of it, it's kind of horrific. It's bad enough to get amnesia in a place where you're surrounded by people that care for you and love you and maybe even try to help jog your memory while you recuperate. But imagine having this befall you while you're in a strange place and don't know anyone. No one's looking after you. You have no idea who you are and no trace of an ID. Well, that is exactly what happened to a man named Benjamin Kyle. And after 17 years of searching for an answer, much still remains a mystery. On August 31st, 2004, travel back in time with me, there was a Burger King employee who arrived at his work in Richmond Hills, Georgia, and he noticed that there was a man laying out by the dumpster. And he assumed that this was a drunken vagrant, so he called the police, but as he came closer, he noticed that this person had been beaten and bloodied. He was laying there without any clothes on him and was covered in fire ants. So he quickly ran inside. As the police got there, the man was coming in and out of consciousness and was clearly unwell. But an ambulance came and they noticed that he had finally come to but was very confused. So they rushed him to the hospital where he was a challenging patient to say the least. He refused to open his eyes. He refused to speak for the first couple of days. And when he finally did, he had these violent outbursts and was incredibly rude to the staff that was trying to care for him. So obviously, this man had no form of identification, and investigators tried what everyone might at this point. So they took fingerprints, but came up with a dead end. They tried missing persons reports, but that yielded no clues either. So after a few months of being in this position, no friends or family had come forward, and he was just as he had started. Now, while being nursed back to health over this period of time, people kept referring to him as an interesting version of John Doe. They called him BK Doe after Burger King, where he was found. So by January of 2005, several months after he had been taken into the hospital, he no longer had any reason to stay and the hospital had to discharge him into a homeless shelter that was nearby in Savannah. Now, with a new sense of identity, this BK Doe decided that he was going to name himself and give himself an alias that he had sincerely believed was his real name, Benjamin. And it was complete with a unique spelling of Benjamin that had two A's. Instead of M-I-N, it was M-A-N. He was certain that this was his own name, but he couldn't remember his last name. So in keeping with the Burger King tradition, he named himself Kyle. So Benjamin Kyle Burger King, he kept the BK alive. In addition to being beaten and bloodied, he did have a rough appearance. So he had a long scraggly beard, wild unkempt hair, ugly long fingernails, and unfortunately, he had very bad cataracts that left him blind couldn't see anything practically in front of arm's length. So medical examinations yielded very little clues as well as to what was going on with them. The only clue that they did find was in the form of a pin that had set a broken arm that he had clearly had suffered years ago. But unfortunately, the hardware that they had used was so common, it was practically impossible to trace where this would have come from or who he was. 
Now, as the search for Benjamin Kyle's identity progressed, he continued to hang on in there in the shelter. He made friends with the staff and the nurses, enjoyed coming by, trying to jog his memory. They'd ask him questions and pepper them here and there, trying to make sure that he could remember who he was. And he showed an affinity towards the people. He tried to be the best he could be, do all possible jobs that he could do. And the staff generally considered him to be highly functioning as compared to many of the other residents. He was smart and affable, and uh, he also liked to read, which was very different than most people who ended up at that situation. Now, after some time, memories did start to come back. However, just like memories work, they're not always the wonderful revelations that we expect them to be. It's flashes, bits and pieces, and they're so sporadic that very little came of this. I'm gonna give you an example. So one of the best things that he remembered was as a child, he would go to the Indiana State Fair and they would give him grilled cheese sandwiches for a quarter. And it's not really that helpful. He also remembered moving to Boulder, Colorado after a flood. He remembered one of his favorite movie theaters in Boulder, Colorado, because he had seen the 1976 film Car Wash there. None of this proved useful. Couldn't remember his family. He couldn't remember his friends' names. But people had some clues finally. They knew that he probably lived in Indiana, and they knew that he probably lived in Colorado. Now, because he was so friendly with the staff, they made him a de facto employee. He would take some of the clothes out of the uh, clothes closet and he would dress himself in a makeshift uniform. And he eventually had a big ring of keys that opened all of the doors in the facility. And one of his jobs as this custodian was to mop the floors. But because of his severe cataracts, he could only see right where his feet were. So he would slowly mop the building until it were complete. But this showed his dedication, and it showed that he was willing to do anything that he could to try to make himself better. Now, he eventually did get cataract surgery, and this is one of the most exciting things. When he had it, he had this huge revelation. For the first time, he got to see what he looked like, and he stood in front of a mirror, and he was stunned. He had assumed he was 20 or 30 years old, and here he was in his mid-60s. I can only imagine how bright that would be. As the investigations continued, he didn't have anywhere else to stay but the shelter. So they continued to let him live there and work there, but it was becoming a little off-putting for the folks. In 2007, a woman by the name of Catherine Slater became a nurse at the facility. She used to be an accountant, so she had this penchant toward problem-solving and puzzles, and she became fascinated. Well, actually, she became obsessed with trying to solve this problem with Benjamin Kyle. So she helped him by getting into television, media, news outlets. She called the FBI. She tracked down leads. Unfortunately, all of this turned out to be dead ends, too. And she did get him on the missing person registry, at least. And to this date, he remains the only person who has ever been listed on the missing person's registry whose whereabouts were actually known. It was kind of a backwards deal. But... Despite having all of the television appearances, nothing came of it. Eventually, she negotiated an appearance on the Dr. Phil McGraw show. So big deal in 2000s, uh, middle 2000s especially. I'm assuming it would be a big deal now. I don't know. But he ended up with the national spotlight. But despite this, nobody came forward. They put together a hotline and received thousands of calls from people who were supposed to give answers. And instead... They posited their own conspiracy theories and things that were useless. Things quickly declined for Benjamin after this 
appearance on Dr. Phil, and Catherine felt partly responsible. So, in an effort to make things right, she took him in and cared for him as if he were her own. Now, he didn't have a job, he did not have an ID, he clearly did not have a social security number, and in the eyes of the law, you pretty much practically do not exist if you have none of those things. So she had him do odd jobs around the house to justify being there. In the process, they learned that he was really good at fixing things. It turns out he's quite handy. It also turns out that he has an encyclopedic knowledge of restaurant equipment. Now, all of these facts came to be important later on, but at the time, they didn't have much significance and were pretty much meaningless. He kept himself busy most days just fixing things around the house, but he also had a bad habit of hoarding, and this caused a great strain on his relationship with Catherine. And the situation became untenable when Benjamin was found to be breaking things so that he would have something to fix. And he felt that if he started a whole bunch of projects, then there's no way she could justifiably kick him out. He continued to live on, but the situation, like I said, was becoming untenable and definitely strained. But a lot changed in August of 2009, nearly five years later from his discovery, when a genealogist joined the investigation. Now, this woman had felt as though DNA might be the likely problem solver for this case in discovering Benjamin's true identity. So she used a company called 23andMe to submit some genetic sampling to find matches for Benjamin. And she was able to trace back a family tree for a Powell family all the way back to the 1800s, but Unfortunately, even though they had a common ancestor from several hundred years ago, there was nothing more recent, there was no location, nothing to uncover who he truly was. So the search dragged on for years. And now, seven years later, in 2011, he had been living with Catherine for almost four years, and the situation at home had reached a breaking point. Catherine was questioning whether Benjamin wanted to even find out his true identity, and so she began not to trust him. They parted ways, and Benjamin left Georgia for Jacksonville, Florida. And he approached a homeless shelter where he was promptly turned away because he did not have a photo ID. Now, this was the nightmare that was realized earlier on. Full in view, you don't have a social security number. Without a social security number, you can't get an ID. Without an ID, you can't get work. Without work, you can't house yourself, feed yourself, clothe yourself. So, in an attempt to make the most of his situation, he set up shop and camped out in the field behind a police department, reading newspapers most days to pass his time. And he came across a story about a college student who was looking for documentary subjects. Benjamin reached out to the filmmaker almost immediately, desperately trying to find someone to tell his story. And the film was eventually made, and in the process, they reached out yet again to several media outlets to do stories about the situation. Radio interviews, television interviews. People thought that this man is so likable, so affable, certainly someone's going to miss him and come forward. Didn't happen that way. The news did make its way to a local restaurant owner, a place called Crazy Fish, and the man felt so sorry for Benjamin and felt like he could, the least he could do is give him a job have a place for him to stay, and so he put him up at his restaurant and in his home. 
And Benjamin started a new life. And at this point, everything was going normal for him, and he didn't really have any interest in finding his old identity. Kind of proved Catherine right. He didn't have any memories of his friends and family, so when people asked him why he didn't care, he explained how meaningless it was. You can't miss someone that you don't know. You can't long for a situation that you don't remember. Plus, if there really were family members out there or old friends, they haven't come forward. It probably is not a great situation, something that he does not even need to return to. Around this time, another genealogist joined the investigations, a lady called Cece Moore, who happens to be one of the foremost experts in her field. She studies something called autosomal DNA. So autosomal DNA is taking the information from both sets of parents, the mother and the father, as opposed to what was going on with all of the other testing, which was generally only tracing the Y chromosome line. Cece managed to get in touch with a family member from the Powell family tree that had been discovered by the previous genealogist. And in doing her detective work, she found out that there was going to be a huge family reunion. So she arranged for all of the family members to spit in vials and mail them off so that they could provide DNA samples and increase the likelihood of finding a genetic match for poor Benjamin. And the DNA analyses revealed several fascinating conclusions. One of the most important was that there had been a misidentified person on the previous family tree. As it turns out, there was a family member who had split off in the mid-1800s and moved to Indiana. A little detective work later, Cece found a 1967 yearbook from Jefferson High School in Lafayette, Indiana. And in that yearbook, she found a picture of a one William Burgess Powell, a match to the man that we've known for the past seven years as Benjamin Kyle. Now, finally, Benjamin had an identity. He had a hometown. And most exciting of all, he had two living siblings in his hometown. This was a life-changing moment because now that he had an identity, he could get a social security number. With that social security number, he could get an ID, he could get his government benefits, but he also got a lot of questions. One of the most pressing was, why did his brothers never come looking for him? And as it turns out, they had when he first went missing in 1976. So Benjamin Kyle, or now William Burgess Powell, as it turns out, had suffered what is known as a dissociative fugue state. So in this dissociative feud state, victims will commonly assume new identities. They'll become transitory and travel about, and sometimes the condition can last for days or weeks, or other times, scary enough, it can last for months or years, as it did for William. Most of the sufferers are even unaware of the fact that they're in this condition until someone else brings it to their attention. And when that happens, suddenly they're lost and confused. They feel helpless in an attempt to discover and regain their true identities. The fugue state, as it's called, is generally brought about when someone suffers unimaginable stress, a traumatic situation, something that is the brain's way of protecting the body from extreme, overwhelming uh, events. So as Benjamin and Cece put together the pieces of his past, the evidence for a dissociative fugue state diagnosis just began to pile up. 
And as it turns out, Kyle or William had been his mother's favorite growing up, and that was something that his father did not take well to. His dad was a World War II veteran who today would probably be diagnosed as someone that had suffered with PTSD. The father was an abusive alcoholic with severe rage issues, and his son William oftentimes became, uh, became the object of his rage, so he would take it out in awful ways on his son. And in a clear effort to escape a bad situation, at the age of 16, William left home to live with some friends, but he continued to meet with his family for dinner every night. He graduated high school and got into his own trailer home, moved close by to his family, but far enough away to have his distance, continued to have family meals. And then one night in 1976, he didn't show up to his dinner. Nobody could find him, so the family filed a missing persons report. They called the police who searched his trailer, found all of his belongings. They found his car at the edge of town, and they feared the worst. However, the police were able to trace that he had gone to Colorado and was working in a restaurant where presumably his encyclopedic knowledge of restaurant equipment was taking effect. He reached out, uh, his family rather, reached out to him multiple times, but he never followed up with them uh, to respond. And so after months and years of silence, his family assumed that he had died. He hadn't really taken care of himself. He never cared for eating healthy foods. He drank excessively, he smoked, and so the family had presumed that he was dead. Now the last person to see him was a man called Chico Gates, who had briefly worked with him at a movie theater in Boulder, Colorado. And Gates said that it was William's idea to move to Boulder because he had saved up some money after a settlement where he had slipped and fallen at work, broken his arm, and had to have surgery to set a pin to fix it. So after they had been in Boulder, Colorado, Chico shortly left and was the last person to have known to talk to William Powell. Social Security records show that William had earned money at various restaurants from 1978 to 1973, sorry, 1978 to 1983, but after that date, there's absolutely no record. They just stopped completely. And to this day, there's a 21-year gap from 83 to 2004 that's completely missing from his life. He has no memory. Nobody has stepped forward to say that they'd worked with him, that they'd seen him. Nobody knows where he went, how he got around, what name he went by, or oh yeah, why he was beaten and left for dead. It took 10 years to solve, to find the identity of Benjamin Kyle, but the mystery of him is far from solved. Now, I wonder, had people in this mysterious gap of the story sincerely considered the meaning of the scripture and the words that were posed in James about not judging and not showing favoritism, would William have ever ended up being lost for so long? Would he have been treated so inhumanely by the system? Now, our biases as humans are strong, and even though we try to set them aside, we inevitably cloud our outlook of others with the way we think people should be, how we believe they should dress, what we want them to sound like, how we want them to act, how we want them to behave. Instead, perhaps, maybe we should live in the light of faithful actions. Stand with mercy as we are forgiven. 
May we go in faith and do what we can to serve our fellow brothers and sisters and be of service to their needs as we serve the kingdom. Thank you. We thank you for joining us today. And it is our hope that you have experienced the blessing of God through our time together. If you'd like to know more about our church community and its ministries, visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.